0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled, An Off-The-Shelf Approach for Myeloma Care, Visualizing the Present and Future of BCMA Antibodies. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash EGA860. Downloadable practice aids are also available. Hello. This is Dr. Sagar Lonial from the Winship Cancer Institute of Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and I want to welcome you to an off the shelf approach for myeloma care. Today, we're going to explore the exciting development of novel antibodies targeting a new target in multiple myeloma, B cell maturation antigen, or BCMA. I've highlighted BCMA on the plasma cell to give you a sense of its potential therapeutic importance. In multiple myeloma. Although there are three main modalities for targeting BCMA, a CAR T-cell-based therapy, antibody drug conjugates, as well as bispecific antibodies, today I'm going to focus more on the antibody-based approaches, how they work, and the team-based considerations for delivering effective off-the-shelf care. Throughout, I'll share several resources that can inform the clinical use antibody drug conjugates, as well as bispecific antibodies, so please take a moment to download these practical tools before we get started. And probably the first question of interest is, why BCMA? What are the unmet needs and the biology behind this target in multiple myeloma? So despite 20 years of advances with agents such as proteasome inhibitors, immunomodulatory agents, as well as specific monoclonal antibodies, that target cd38 or Slam F seven. We know that these have made significant inroads in terms of outcomes for patients with myeloma. And in fact, that's manifest on the next slide by many of these patients having median survivals of well over ten years. However, few of these approaches are ultimately curative for most of these patients. And so when we develop drug-resistant myeloma, we start to get to one drug, two drug, or what we call triple-class refractory myeloma, myeloma that is resistant to immunomodulatory agents, proteasome inhibitors, and anti-CD38 antibodies. The median survival for many of these patients is often nine months or less. We also recognize that looking at real-world data, about 35% of triple-class refractory patients ultimately don't receive additional therapy. So, with two, three, or four lines of therapy, they may choose not to go on to additional treatments because the efficacy of those treatments can be quite limited or the toxicity may be significant such that patients choose to go to supportive care. And this represents a significant unmet medical need and a real challenge for how do we address these needs for our patients who, to date, have done quite well but ultimately may be running out of potential therapeutic options from a treatment perspective. So why is BCMA such an attractive target, and why is it important in myeloma? So let's explore at least a few of these questions. What you'll see here is the BCMA signaling pathway, and BCMA has two agonist ligands, a proliferation-inducing ligand called APRIL, and a B-cell activating factor called BAFF. Upon binding of these ligands to BCMA, multiple growth and signaling survival cascades are activated in myeloma cells, many of them through the NF-kappa B pathway. And it's important to recognize that when we think about things that myeloma cells do that ultimately evade our treatment or make them so challenging from a treatment perspective is proliferation, drug resistance, and binding to the microenvironment and all three of these are really mediated by BCMA so blockade or interruption of BCMA directed signaling may ultimately improve not just efficacy from a therapeutic perspective but actually may result in a more susceptible malignant plasma cells because you've eliminated some of those common denominators that plasma cells use to be malignant and be drug resistant Ultimately, again, the goal is to reduce survival of these cells in the long term. Now, what you also see here is an enzyme called gamma secretase. And what gamma secretase does is actually clip BCMA off of the surface of the cell and release it into the plasma such that soluble BCMA then potentially becomes a sink for any anti-BCMA directed therapy. Now, when we talk about targeting BCMA, this has gotten us to where we are today, with two FDA-approved BCMA-directed options, and likely a third on the horizon. So in 2020, belantumab methodotin, or Belomaf, was granted accelerated approval in patients with relapsed and refractory myeloma who've received greater than four prior therapies, including an anti-CD38 antibody, a PI, and an IMID. And shortly thereafter, in 2021, Idacel, which was the first CAR T-cell approved in myeloma, also was approved for patients with relapsed and refractory myeloma after more than four prior lines of therapy, including an IMID, a PI, and an anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody. And then about a year later, Siltacel was approved, the second CAR T-cell in myeloma, for adult patients with relapse and refractory myeloma after four or more prior lines of therapy, including an IMID, a PI, and an anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody. And we anticipate that BCMA-directed bispecific antibodies will likely be approved in the next year. So now that we've discussed a little bit about the biology and the importance of BCMA for malignant plasma cell survival, let's move on and explore the first off-the-shelf BCMA option. The antibody drug conjugate belantamab mafidotin or bellamaph. And we'll talk a little bit about how bellamaph works, the evidence that supports its use, and how the wider hematology and oncology team can deliver effective therapy for this agent. So, what we know about BCMA antibody drug conjugates is that ADCs have a unique structure, and bellamaph, again, is no exception to this. There are three main components. To an antibody drug conjugate. The first is an IgG based monoclonal antibody. The second is a linker. And the third is the cytotoxic payload. And in the situation of belantamab mafidotin or belimaph, the cytotoxic payload is called MMAF, which is different from many other payloads you may see in other antibody drug conjugates, which use something called MMAF. And we're going to talk about some of the ocular toxicity associated with belamaf, and that is because of the MMAF. Antibody drug conjugates that have MMAE in them are more likely to develop or induce peripheral neuropathy. Now, as we think about this specific antibody drug conjugate, it is important to recognize that the IgG-based monoclonal antibody unlike other antibody drug conjugates in the field, potentially does have the ability to fix complement and interact with effector T cells and other effector cells in the immune system, such that belantamab mafodotin can induce ADCC or ADCP. Now, when we again look at these mechanisms of action, you can see there are three potential mechanisms of action for belantamab mafidotin. The first, again, is through the cytotoxic warhead, if you will, the MMAF, in its normal function as an antibody drug conjugate, where the antibody gets internalized into a lysosome. That lysosome then degrades and separates the MMAF from the rest of the antibody. That MMAF then travels to the nucleus and induces cytotoxic cell death. That's the standard mechanism for most antibody drug conjugates. But as I mentioned before, because the IgG backbone is in fact able to fix, complement, and bind effector cells, ADCC and ADCP are potential mechanisms of action. And as we'll see later on, this may be part of the reason why there is potential synergy when this agent is combined with immunomodulatory agents, which we know can activate and upregulate effector cell function, particularly in the context of antibody-based therapy. And then the third way that belamaf can induce uh, cell death is through something called immunogenic cell death. And immunogenic cell death is actually probably one of the more interesting and exciting mechanisms of cell death, because what it potentially means is that you may be inducing anti-tumor immune responses in the host that hopefully can last even longer than just the administration of the drug itself. And that's something that we're learning more and more about of late, but this is certainly a very intriguing and potentially very exciting mechanism of action for this agent. So what evidence do we have that supports the use of Belomath in relapsed and refractory multiple myeloma? So Belomath was approved based on a phase two randomized trial called the DREAM2 study. And the DREAM2 study evaluated 200 patients who had relapsed in refractory multiple myeloma, who fit the criteria that we mentioned earlier, refractory to IMIDS, PIs, and a CD38 antibody, had had more than three prior lines of therapy, and had reasonable blood counts and overall performance status. And what we saw from the DREAM2 study was that ultimately the 2.5 milligram per kilogram dose was the best and safest dose with an overall response rate of about 32%. Now this is really important because it wasn't just more than three prior lines of therapy for the patients that came in. It was actually a median of seven prior lines of therapy. So this was a very heavily pretreated patient population with many, if not all, being refractory to most commonly available antimyeloma agents to date. Now, with that overall response rate of about 32%, we typically would see a progression-free survival of about three months, and that's what we saw in the DREAM2 study. But more importantly, among patients who responded, the duration of response was about 11 months. To me, The difference between progression free survival and DOR represents an amalgamated endpoint between efficacy of a drug and safety of a drug. And what I mean by that is there are drugs that we give where the DOR and the PFS are really close. And what that means is that the drug may be effective, but patients can't stay on it. And so ultimately, the benefit is limited, even for patients who respond. We know, however, that drugs like daratumumab or carfilzomib or even bortezomib over 20 years ago all had response rates of about 30% in refractory myeloma, all had median progression-free survivals of around three months, and had DORs ranging from seven to nine to 10 months. And that suggests that belamaf is in that same category where it can be delivered, it can be effective, and with appropriate modification and safety measures, it can be continued, particularly among patients who are responding to therapy. Now, we looked at data with single-agent Bellomaf, and I think the real question is, how do we do what we always do in myeloma, which is combine drugs together to ultimately try and get better efficacy? And so there are a number of trials that look at combinations of belamaf with other both proteasome inhibitors as well as immunomodulatory agents. And the first trial that really did this was the Algonquin study. And this was a trial out of Canada where Belomap was combined with pomalidomide and dexamethasone. And this was really important because it didn't just evaluate efficacy, but it also looked at different dosing schedules and dosing levels to understand whether when you combine Belomap with other commonly used agents, can you potentially reduce the dose of belamaf or change the frequency of dosing in an effort to try and mitigate some of the ocular toxicity that we know is an MMAF directly related adverse event? And what we saw in the Algonquin study was a very high overall response rate, over 70%, certainly better than we would have expected with either drug alone. It certainly was a little bit earlier in the treatment line than what I showed you from DREAM-2, but certainly this data really did support the use of Belomaf and pomalidomide and dexamethasone. The other trial where Bellamaf has been combined with an immunomodulatory agent is the DREAM-6 study, where Belomaf was combined with lenalidomide and dexamethasone. Among patients, again, who have good performance status, have undergone a transplant if eligible, and progressed on one or more prior lines of therapy. And what we saw here is not only was this a very active combination using Belomath at 2.5 mg per kg given every four weeks, different from the every three week uh, dosing schedule, the median progression-free survival had not been reached yet, the median duration of response had not been reached yet, and certainly the safety looked to be quite good in a very small number of patients, suggesting again, based on this complementary mechanism of action between an immunomodulatory agent and an antibody, that this partnership will ultimately lead to better combination effects, and will allow us to do what we've done with every other agent in myeloma, which is not really use it as a single agent, but rather combine it with other agents in order to try and ultimately improve efficacy and safety for patients in the short term. Now we've discussed some of the efficacy of Belomath as well as its ability to be combined. But what we haven't really touched on is safety. So when we think about adverse events to expect with Belomath, you can see the most common is keratopathy. And that's corneal epithelial changes that initially are only discovered on slit lamp exam by an ophthalmologist or an optometrist. Now, that keratopathy can, in some patients, result in decreased visual acuity, blurred vision. There are some patients who may have infusion-related reactions and fever or fatigue. The other common adverse events that we notice are some hematologic adverse events, including thrombocytopenia, anemia, and neutropenia. These do not occur with significant grade 3 or grade 4 severity, but certainly they can occur. But if you look really at the overall magnitude and size of uh, some of the adverse events, what you'll notice is that keratopathy is probably at the top. And once you get beyond that, there really isn't a lot of non-hematologic adverse events that really jump out. So let's look a little bit more to understand what keratopathy really meant in the DREAM 2 clinical trial. So if you look at all patients in the FDA-approved dose of 2.5 mg per kg of Belomaf, you'll see that about 72% of patients had any keratopathy at all. And again, most of this was identified by slint lamp exam, not always by symptoms. What you'll then see is that if you look at patients who had any symptoms at all, perhaps some blurry vision, perhaps some dry eyes. Perhaps itchy eyes, it was about 56% of patients. So 53 out of 95 total patients dosed, meaning that their visual changes were less than two lines on the Snellen chart. Now, if you look at patients who had BCVA, best corrected visual acuity change, of 20, 50 or worse, meaning two lines or more of the Snellen eye chart change. It was only 18%. So one out of five patients had that significant degree of keratopathy, and only three patients had to discontinue due to a corneal event. Now, the question that always comes up is if you develop grade three or you develop grade four, is it reversible? And the answer is yes, it's reversible. It just takes time. And we'll talk a little bit about that time and what happens to myeloma during that period of time when you're holding the drug. So there are clear recommended management strategies for ocular toxicity with belamaph Let's take a moment to visualize how some of these may manifest in the eye using a 3D model and what's ultimately recommended. So one of the key points here is that these MECs or cysts occur all over the cornea, but they typically start in the periphery meaning that they don't necessarily impact visual fields because as you know, visual fields are really impacted by what overlies the pupil. So when these MECs begin, when I said before that often they're picked up by an ophthalmologist but are not symptomatic, it's because they start on the periphery and what they'll then do is work their way centrally. And it's really only when they're in the central portion of the cornea that they begin to impact visual acuity. So here, what you see is an example of grade one keratopathy. In this, the plan would be to continue at the current dose. When you look potentially at grade two, it's seeing more of these MECs on the corneal surface. Again, it's described as moderate superficial keratopathy during a corneal exam done by a slit lamp. As you can see, there are more in the central portion of the cornea. Some may or may not be overlying the pupil, There may or may not be significant impacts on visual acuity at this point, but certainly with grade two, the recommendation is to hold Bellamaf until improvement in the corneal findings go back to grade one. Next, you'll see grade three or grade four, and this does require a little bit more in terms of supportive care. Again, the recommendation here is to withhold until improvement in both corneal exam findings and change in BCVA grade to grade one or better, and then resume at a reduced dose. Now, what you'll see here is that there are microcysts that are in the central portion of the cornea here. That's what's causing the changes in visual acuity. Now, as I told you at the beginning, when you see MECs begin, they start on the periphery and move centrally. When you hold the drug, they start to resolve first in the central portion and then resolve in the periphery. So while it's late that you may get MECs overlying the pupil, the first area to recover when you hold the drug is the area over the pupil. So you may see recovery of visual acuity and still be at grade two by the MEC grading criteria. Now, for patients who develop grade 4, which often means that there may be an ulcer in the cornea, again, you need to give aggressive supportive care, and ophthalmologists have ideas on what to do for this. And this may be really important from the management perspective. And I will tell you that certainly it is possible to retreat patients who develop grade 4, but you need to wait until they've recovered and likely have a significant dose reduction and change the dosing schedule if you're going to continue in this context there was a patient in the DREAM2 study who had grade four keratopathy, had an ulcer, it completely recovered, and the patient was, in fact, retreated successfully with dose modification and dose attenuation. So this should give you a flavor of what an ophthalmologist or an optometrist is looking at when they do the eye exam. So again, given these ocular events, many of the practical aspects of Bellomath therapy can occur with partnership with an eye care professional. And again, this is really important that you partner with an eye care professional so that they can get the patient seen prior to dosing. You do need that exam within 72 hours of the next dose of Belamaf to make sure that the keratopathy is at a grade that's good enough to allow subsequent dosing of Belamaf. in this context. It can be either an optometrist or an ophthalmologist, depending upon what is easier for you and for the patient to get seen. There is a recommendation of preservative free artificial tears given four times a day to address some of that dry eyes or itchy eyes that may occur with Belamaph. And then again, instruct patients to avoid contact lenses. This is really important to try and reduce further corneal issues that may occur during dosing with Belamaph. So here's just a quick schema that shows you the eye exam schedule. You can download this and share this with your patient. Basically, you get a baseline eye exam anytime before the first dose. Then you get an eye exam prior to each dose of therapy. If you hold the dose, then you can begin to change the schedule. If you decide not to give it at cycle two, day one, for instance, you can bring them back a week later, two weeks later, three weeks later, whatever time frame works for you in order to ultimately understand what the best interval may be or when the eye has recovered the most. Now, I do want to spend just a moment talking a little bit about what happens when you hold the dose for a patient with belamaph And that is what we know is that on average, it takes between 40 and 60 days to get recovery of a significant keratopathy. And when we looked at patients that needed that interval before dosing again, what we noticed was that about 80% of them actually maintained their response or deepened their response during that dose hold. So, the old story about if you don't give the treatment, patients are going to progress, that may not be the case here because the half life of Belamaf is variable. And because it's a new target for many patients, they may be exquisitely sensitive to BCMA directed therapies. And only 18 to 20% of patients actually had progression during that holding of the drug to allow keratopathy to improve. So don't be panicked and certainly provide reassurances to your patients that they don't have to be panicked about holding the dose. Let the eyes get better, then re-dose and know that for most patients they maintain or deepen their response. So some practical points on Bellomath. Again, you do need to be certified with the REMS program, complete training. Patients must be enrolled in the REMS program and comply with monitoring. Again, care coordination is really key between oncologists, nurses, pharmacists, and ophthalmologists, this really is critical to successfully delivering belamaph in a safe and effective way. And certainly uh, many of us have now done this. And actually there are other drugs now in oncology that require this same partnership to be effective for other cancers. And so this is something that I think we're all going to be doing more of. So we've talked a lot about focusing on the antibody drug conjugate. What's next with BCMA? And one of the more exciting new developments with BCMA therapy is the emergence of another off-the-shelf immunotherapy option, which are bispecific antibodies, which are rapidly being developed for use in relapsed and refractory myeloma. And let's see a little bit more about the science, about this unique approach to targeting BCMA. So in general, bispecific T-cell engagers bind concomitantly to both CD3 and a tumor-specific antigen, and in this case, it's BCMA, facilitating co-localization of a T cell and a cancer cell, which then activates that T cell through CD4 and CD8 T cell activation. These activated T cells secrete interferon gamma, granzyme B, and perforin, and this ultimately is the mechanism by which these T cells induce myeloma cell death. So what are some examples of highly active bispecific antibodies in myeloma? Well, to date, the BCMA CD3 bispecific agent teclistamab has shown robust activity in the MAJESTIC-1 trial. And the MAJESTIC-1 trial was a cohort of patients with more than three prior lines of therapy, including a PI, an IMID, and an anti-CD38 antibody, and no prior BCMA-targeted therapy. And in this cohort, what we saw was a very high overall response rate in the 60% range with MRD negativity rate at 10 to the minus 5, somewhere in the 24 to 25% range as well. So even in the context of refractory myeloma, we're seeing deep responses that certainly can be durable. And this data was updated and presented very recently at ASCO and was just published in the New England Journal as well. Very, very encouraging and exciting data as well. l is another bispecific agent that was tested in the Magnetism 1 trial and 2 trial. These, again, were relapsed in refractory patients, including progression on a PI, an IMID, and an anti-CD38 antibody. And again, what you're seeing is an overall response rate of about 64% with a CR, stringent CR rate of about 35%. And the MRD data is currently in progress as well. So very encouraging responses, even in the context of refractory myeloma. Now, these unique mechanisms of action come with unique potential toxicities. And as the experience so far with bispecifics antibodies have shown us, the major event to be aware of is cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity. And in the management of CRS, tosaluzumab is usually very effective and with, for instance, teclistamab, CRS was predominantly grade one, grade two. With l renatomab, there was premedication. One-step priming can mitigate that CRS. And most events were grade one, grade two as well. So I like to think of CAR T-cells in myeloma as having one grade less severe than CD19 CAR T-cells in lymphoma. And uh, when I think about bispecifics, I think about it having one less grade severe than CAR T cells do in myeloma. So mostly grade one, grade two, with very rare grade three or four CRS with the agents in current phase one study. When we think about neurotoxicity, we think about, again, rare, mostly grade one, grade two, tosaluzumab, corticosteroids, or anticonvulsants are typically what we would use. Again, in most of these cases, they don't require treatment discontinuation or dose reductions because of neurologic events, including ICANs. These just don't occur with the same level and frequency that we see with CAR T-cells in any other cell therapy setting at this time. So let's sum up our experience with BCMA antibodies in myeloma. We know that BCMA is a unique target that offers an opportunity to address significant unmet medical needs, particularly in the triple-class refractory myeloma patient population. Belomaf does represent an effective off-the-shelf option in many patients with refractory myeloma. Again, being aware of and partnering with our ophthalmology colleagues is critically important to managing and minimizing ocular potential events. And this coordination between our pharmacists, our APPs, our ophthalmologists, or eye care professionals is really critical for being successful in this strategy overall. And we also know that BCMA-directed bispecific antibodies are an emerging off-the-shelf modality that are highly effective even after prior BCMA therapy. And there was a cohort of patients who received teclistamab who had been exposed to prior BCMA-directed therapy, and the response rates were slightly lower, but still very impressive, even in a prior BCMA subset of patients. So I think the real questions at this point are, Who do we think about when we think about an antibody drug conjugate like Belomaf? And who do we think about when we think about a BCMA bispecific? Well, I think to me, the real question is about patients that need immediate off-the-shelf options. And if you've got a patient that perhaps is older, a little bit more frail, perhaps doesn't want to come into the hospital for some of the priming doses that are needed with BCMA bispecifics, wants to manage purely as an outpatient then for now, that might be a patient for whom Belomaph might be a good first choice, a good first step to try and see whether you can A, get a response, and B, the patient can tolerate that approach to BCMA-directed therapy, and again, not have to wait a few weeks, as we often do with CAR T-cells, either for apheresis or ultimately for production of that CAR T-cell product. On the other hand, if you've got a patient that perhaps is a little fitter but does need an off-the-shelf potential treatment approach, is willing to come into the hospital, you think they have the physical and cardiopulmonary reserve to deal with CRS should that become an issue in the first few doses of therapy, that may be a patient who may be better suited for a BCMA bispecific. So this concludes our exploration of BCMA antibody therapy and myeloma and some of the evidence that supports the rapid integration of these agents in the management of patients with unmet medical needs. I hope you found this program interesting and useful for your practice, and thank you again for joining me today. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash EGA 860. This educational activity is supported by an educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline.